Thank you for being here in God's house, even without God's mark. God's mark upon you is in absentia. But uh, thank you for gathering today. We have a very special lesson. I thought what would be the most practical apropos lesson for us today as we dig deeper into scripture is how to pick a pastor. Sound good? Is that right where we're living, right where we are? If you're new to Champion Force, we are without a senior pastor. You would probably not even recognize that fact because it seems like everything is working great. And it is, and we're thankful, but we are looking for a one senior pastor who will lead and give direction to all of our ministries and the church at Champion Forest. And so we need to talk a little bit about that. I said that we're going to be educating some of you non-Baptists. Do we have any non-Baptists in the room? Yep. Teaching some of the non-Baptists how Baptists pick a pastor. And then, do we have any Baptists in the room? We're going to teach some of the Baptists how to not follow the tradition of picking a pastor and go more toward a biblical model of of picking a pastor. So something for absolutely everybody, except for people who don't want a pastor and it'll be boring to you. Although we're going to talk about God's word, so you can't miss with that. Um, So we're going to dig down deep. Uh, We're on the PowerPoint yet. We'll put the PowerPoint up so close. It's... There we go. Now we are complete. So we're going to start off with how do we pick a pastor? So if you were responsible for picking the pastor, whether at Champion Forest or X Church, what would you do? Probably 100% of you would say, I'm going to start with prayer. I'm going to pray about this. This sounds pretty serious. If it was, you know, how to bake cookies for the GAs and RAs, I probably wouldn't pray much about that. I would just do it. But if we're going to pick a pastor, I'm going to go ahead, spend some time in prayer. That would be apropos. Uh, Something else you might do is develop a list of characteristics, right? You would say, think about who you would want to be the, the senior pastor at your church. And you would think, well, I want him to be young. I want him to have 50 years of experience. I would want him to be good looking and very funny. Some of you are thinking I'm describing myself, but I'm not. (laughs) You would think, I want him to be godly. I would want him to be interested in the ministries that I'm interested in and be nice to the people that we don't agree with their ministries, but we still want to keep them in the church and all these things. And we would develop this huge list of characteristics that probably nobody would be able to fill that list. But at least we're looking for something that we can shoot toward, uh, we would start thinking about who. Of all the people that I know, now that I have a list of characteristics, I've been praying, God's going to be talking to me. Who do I know that might fit that bill? And then I would ask other people, who do you know that would be a great senior pastor? Do you know someone that I don't know? Because we don't want to miss anyone. We're looking for the best hotshot to lead out that we can find. And so we don't want to leave any stone Unturned. We want to do our due diligence. And then as typical pastor, I mean, Baptist, we would interview some sort of an interview process. Probably people had been sending in resumes, other potential pastors who are very unhappy with where they are and would love to go somewhere else. Or maybe they've been without for a while and looking for where God is leading them. And they have their resumes prepared and they'll send them off to a church, whether it be ours or whatever, whatever church. 
And then you would have a committee of people or, or maybe the whole church in some instances. You realize the average Southern Baptist church runs around a hundred people. That is average. That's the majority. And so there's a lot of smaller churches and they handle things a little different than what we would as a, what we would call a mega church, but uh, bigger than just a hundred people. Um, and we would listen to some guys preach and we would visit with them. We would interview, have a process of interview and talk to them. And things went well and they felt the Lord leading and we felt the Lord leading. We would probably bring them before some of our groups, maybe our committees, maybe our boards, our deacons, or some churches have elders and talk through and have these conversations and all continues to go well and God continues to guide. You would have them prepare their best sermon ever and they would come and preach it at the church. And based on that, we would all have a big vote and whether it be by hands or by electronic or uh, secret ballot, some way we would do a vote and we'd cast a vote. And in some churches, they, they will define how many votes would be adequate. In other words, there'd have to be a simple majority would, would carry the day or a super majority. And they would define that to what percentage of the church. Some churches would even say it would have to be a hundred percent. If we don't get a hundred percent vote, and maybe that's a church of, you know, 50 people and we want everyone to be voting. Yes. If not, we're going to go back to the drawing board. Example of going back to the drawing board, it would be First Baptist Church of Houston. You know, Dr. Bassanio was pastor there for how many years? Do you know? Roughly 40, from what I understand. And they say, statistically, that when you're choosing a pastor, it's usually a month for every year that the former pastor had been pastor. So 40 years would equate to about 40 months. You can do the math. And that's just generally speaking, the longer the senior pastor, it takes maybe a little bit longer to work through that. Well, at First Baptist, when Dr. Bassanio retired, they, um, oh, y'all hear those drums? Listen, that is our deaf ministry listening to music. So everybody just wave a silent wave as they're very loud. Uh, they do that every week and you probably heard it. If you don't know what it is now, you know, so I've digressed. So First Baptist Houston they formed a committee. They went and looked for a long time, found a guy. Uh, the Lord was leading. And then before they even presented it to the church, um, the, the candidate felt like God was not leading him that direction after all, which is his right. And, and we should know about it now and not after the vote, right? And so he stepped aside and the committee didn't have anybody else waiting in the wings. They started all over from scratch, as was their uh, protocol, and started again. So it took even longer for that church to find uh, originally Greg Mott, who's their senior pastor now. Some churches will uh, date several pastors. They'll have two or three in the wings. Um, I've heard of churches that will have them one preach one week, another another week the third, a third week, and then the congregation votes on which one they like the best and how all that works. And so there's a ton of different ways that churches choose pastors. Uh, the Catholics, so other denominations, there's ways that they choose their pastors. You're looking at the Catholic church with a very specific organization, a uh, very tight group here. Uh, if you can't read these, at the very bottom is the laity. That's the congregants. That's you and that's me. Uh, above them, we have the deacons who are not employed by the Catholic Church, but who are servants, and they serve and they do assistance to the priests and the bishops. 
So above the deacons would be the priests, and they're the ones that are at the, the individual churches. They're doing the bulk of the work and the preaching, the teaching, even though they do not have the full authority uh, that the bishops have. <clears throat> the bishops have the full authority. They are kind of overseeing, and they will do some things in the church, but they're the ones that will assign a priest to a particular place for a certain amount of time, and they would move them around accordingly. If there's a problem, they would get into, the bishops would go in and figure out uh, what's the problem, what needs to happen. And the congregation has absolutely no say in this. The The bishops are doing that. Of course, the archbishops are above them, and they're kind of leading the bishops. And then above them, you have the cardinals, and they're the ones that are just under the pope, who is the man. Uh, pope is um, Latin for Papa, Father. He is the father of the church, the head dog. I don't want to say dog. He's the head man in the Catholic Church. Uh, I didn't mean to say that, seriously. Um, just I have respect for him, although um, he is able to speak ex cathedra, which is Latin for from the chair, and that teaching is the same level as biblical teaching, as, as the Bible. And so it takes it a little further than what we say a man can do within the church. But the other uh, bishops and priests, they are responsible for understanding, interpreting, teaching, and commenting on God's word, and they should be able to do it well. They believe that the uh, the, the, the apostleship from Jesus's original disciples was passed down by the laying on of hands and transferred through generations. Uh, and then the Catholic church began. They received those people and began this church. And Catholic means universal. They were the only church. They were the universal church. And in their mind, the correct church, the people did not need to know or understand because the priests and the bishops would tell them what God had for them. In fact, they didn't even translate their their Bibles or feel the need to translate their Bibles into the common language because it didn't matter you reading it. We, as the leadership, would tell you what you need to do and how you need to conduct yourself. And we're responsible for that all the way up to the Pope, uh, the most responsible. And then whenever there's a new Pope, uh, we won't have time to go into the process, but then the cardinals get involved, pray, seek the Lord, find a, a man among them to become the Pope. And then, you know, they've got the black smoke or the white smoke, depending on if they chose one. So there's some ceremony and some pomp and circumstance that goes on. But they have a very well-defined government and organization on how to choose the actual priest that is preaching in the pulpit to those in leadership and has very little to do with the individuals of the church, although they are dependent on them. I wanted to take a brief mention of the Methodists. I've never been Methodist. I grew up Baptist, Southern Baptist. So that's what I've experienced. And we'll talk about that. But um, one thing that John Wesley did, uh, he still had a lot of the government of the Catholic Church, even though he was a reformer and branched out along with the Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians, branched out of at a Reformation from the Catholic Church, desiring to reform, keep what was good, but reform what was bad. Uh, so in the Methodist Church, particularly the United Methodist Church, John Wesley said that um, he and the church government would be in charge of assigning a pastor to a church. So there again, the people don't have any control or vote. It's all done by the government of the church. And in fact, John Wesley said this, 
We have found by long and consistent experience that a frequent exchange of preachers is best. The preacher has one talent. No one whom I ever yet knew has all the talents which are needful for beginning, continuing, and perfecting the work of grace in a whole congregation. So each appointment in their church is for one year. It could be renewed where they would stay or they would be moved to another Methodist church. So you could come in one day and you're like, oh, wait, we have a new pastor? Yes, for the next year, this is your new pastor. Uh, unless he's renewed. And I believe the average is about four years that um, most of the Methodist pastors will stay in one place before they're moved on to another place, uh, except for extenuating circumstances. And um, if you're Methodist and you know more about it, we can hear from you later. Um, but that's just a general overview of how Methodists choose pastors. Uh, Baptists, as well as some others like um, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, I believe the Church of Christ do it this way too, is some sort of a resume interview process where you're either looking at several different gentlemen or perhaps one at a time, uh, depending on your tradition and your understanding of God's word, of how to bring in someone who's right for the job, in fact, seeking God's man for the job. But in this case, where Baptist especially, where we believe in the priesthood of the believer that each of you can have direct access to God, and God can have direct access to you, and God is and should be communicating with you as well as the leadership that we all together find God's will in different ways throughout, and then that starts to break down in some in some ways, depending on your church polity. Uh, I won't dive too down too do- too far down into that, but probably this may too not be this may also not be the best way to choose. A pastor because you can get very corporate in this. And when I say corporate, I mean we can take good and bad ideas from the corporate world who may or may not be Christians in there. I'm not saying either way, but that they have policies. They've run huge businesses and they have to pick leaders on different levels. They go through these processes and the church to some degree has adopted some of those practices to do some of the things that we do, including pick uh, personnel to be hired and um, hired and, and used by the church to do different leadership things. Um, I think we have to really be careful. I think the church has to really be careful to adopt too many corporate things because God does not practice His church democracy. Well, not demo- His church government by these corporate things. A lot of corporate ideas are even brought from the Bible and taken to the secular world and used with great uh, benefit, great use. And now the church is really kind of borrowing some of those things back, forgetting they were in the Bible in the first place. We're like, hey, they're running a business. They're doing great. What if we were to do that and use this rule to keep our pastors from getting into trouble and different things? So they're not all bad. I'm just saying that we should be careful that we want to function as a church and not as a corporate entity like we have here in America, because God often leads us to do things that are unconventional. And not that corporate world never does anything unconventional, not that that's the case, but they tend to find something that works and they keep with it. We have to remember who's in charge of the church. And who is that? And God does things very different, and we should pay attention to his selection of leaders to know best how we select leaders. So let's talk about that. How does God pick leaders? 
The first thing that we want to look at is Genesis 1. This is the most important thing. In the beginning, God. If I could read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is key in understanding God's leadership in the church. It Everything began and begins with God. And then we look, we see God the Father speaking. We, we see God the Spirit hovering over the earth. And then in Colossians, Paul talks about the creation looking back from the New Testament. But he says this in Colossians 1, The Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created by him and for him. This is key in understanding the purpose of creation. That simply is that, that God in the Trinity created the world for his purpose. We exist on this earth completely and totally for the purpose of God and for no other. And if you have other purposes in life, you should let those things go away because that is not what God is leading us to do. God, on the other hand, has created everything for him, his purposes, and for his control. So we need to be tuned in, dialed in, focused in on God in your everyday life as well as your church life. For example, God may want you to go to work this direction instead of this direction like you always go. Like I always go to work this way. But is it necessary that I check with God to make sure I go to work the way he wants me to? I mean, as long as I get to work, isn't that the point? And God says, no, oftentimes the reason you go to work is so that you can do my will. And if you go this way, I've got a whole ministry situation happening over here that you're going to have to take a personal day because you won't be able to make it into work. But I've got you right where I want you. But if you don't focus in on God and ask God to lead you in the very small and specific ways, how many things will we miss because we're just in a rut, going through the motions, doing the things that that we think are best and that hopefully God will bless. God is interested in your very specific, minute life, and he wants you to do his will within it. Take Jesus, for example, in the high priestly, well, in the model prayer, he says what? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He's talking about a kingdom that exists separate than our way of life that he wants us to be engrafted in and live within another kingdom when everything else is vying for our attention. And he says he wants us to pray that his will is done, not our own will, because it's so easy for us to just be used to doing things that are good and expect God to bless that. Instead, God said, Jump out of your comfort zone and ask God's will to be done. Well, of course God's will is going to be done. He's God. Of course he's going to do his will. And that is true. But if you are praying, God, let your will be done today in my life right here at 9 a.m. or maybe 7 a.m. as I'm driving to work. Let your will be done in me. And at noon when I go to lunch and at 1 when I'm back at work, when I'm at school, when I'm at the sewing club, Whatever I'm doing, God, let your will be done in my life. If you pray that prayer, 
it's more likely that God will have your attention and you will be able to hear from God who is very good at communicating with those of us who know him, called according to his purpose and listening to him. That is the key to church leadership is listening to God in the very minute things as well as the huge and big things. So then John, I'm sorry, Jesus in John 17, the high priestly prayer, what does he say? It's a great chapter to read. John 17, Jesus says this over and over. Heavenly Father, I don't do anything except what you tell me to do. I have done everything here on earth while I've been here that you have told me to do. And I have not done anything that you have not told me to do. I have been obedient. I have been seeking. I have been sensitive. I have wanted to know. And I'm a hundred percent. Now, God already knew that. But God, I mean, Jesus was praying that prayer that we would have written in our Bibles today to see how to live life on this earth. That should be our prayer. God, today I just woke up. I want to do everything that you want done in me, through me today. And I don't want to miss it. And if there's anything that you don't want me to do, I don't want to do it, whether it seems good or maybe it seems really bad and I'm just having a bad day and I think I'm entitled. God, I want you to have your will done in my life. That is the kind of leadership that God is looking for within his church. And it starts in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God. It's all about him. And if you have other agendas, you need to shave that off of your life. There's all kinds of governments that we see in our, uh, in, our, in our world, as well as in our churches. You've got a monarchy where the king rules. He and his family usually are the ones that are making decisions for everybody else. A democracy that we know better in a democracy, it's, it's rule by the people. Some people think that churches are a democracy. Don't tell them yet. We'll get to it later, but it's not. It's not a rule by the people because whose rules the church? Yes. So in a democracy, the people, they either elect a group or they all make decisions to tell a group what to do in order to function in the governmental role. That's a democracy. Now, an oligarchy is where you choose a group of people and you just trust them to take care of business. You don't tell them what you want or what to do. You just say, we've elected you guys, trust you, you lead out. A small group, they do their own thing based on an election that happened earlier. Now, a theocracy, what is that? A government by God. You see Theo in the word, that's God. And ocracy is of the government or of government. So a God, God who is controlling what he wants. And often, as our God does, he communicates to his representatives, to his leaders that he has chosen. Imperfect people, oftentimes doing imperfect things, and he changes them and has them communicate his will and his wants. And we listen to those leaders that are before us and we confirm with God's word and then we take action on what it is that he wants us to do. In case we start getting off, there's another leader that's higher that is helping us to be reminded of what's going on. That's what the leadership in a Baptist church really was responsible. We don't have any power over you, the people. You know why? Because you are the church. And we don't have a special dispensation to be the leaders of you. We are just following God and talking to you. If you're following God, maybe you're talking to us. And together we lead and rule 
this little church that we have or whatever little church that you are a part of. That's a theocracy. A federation is where you have groups of people that coalesce together. Some things the group can do better as a group, but then you also have some uh, leadership that you do on your own as groups. That is your federation. And then communism, where the government owns everything and runs everything, and they tell you, the people, what to do and how long to do it, how to do it. They don't tell you why. The government owns it all. You're just doing it to keep things going, and hopefully we'll all be happy. So there are more that we're not going to get into, but I just wanted to go over a few governmental type of po- uh, processes that we can kind of look at as we're comparing what we are looking for in the church and what God is looking for is a theocracy. So continuing on, the first thing we need to understand about God re- ruling and leading a church is that it's all about God. Second thing, God creates a nation. So he created the world. And now at a certain point in time, he creates a nation. It's the nation of Israel, but they're not called that yet. He finds a man named Abram, not Abraham yet. He finds a man named Abram and he says, I'm going to call you out. In fact, I've got the scripture here. He says, now the Lord uh, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house things that made him feel comfortable and gave him some kind of power and um, ability to do things. Leave all of these things and go to the land that I will show you. He didn't even give Abram the whole plan. Does that sound familiar? When God's leading you? God, if you could just give me the whole plan, it would make a lot more sense and I could probably skip a few steps and get everything done that you want done because after all, you're in charge and God says, I'm not telling you the whole plan because you're going to skip some steps. (laughs) I want you to leave what you're doing and I want you to go this way and I'll show you why. That's what he told Abram and Abram did that. Eventually, God changed his name. That's more of what a creator can do. When you change someone's name, you change their purpose. And God did this often with his leaders. He would change their name. They were his. He could name them and guide them and direct them. So it reminds me of what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things will pass away and all things become new. God wants to take you from whatever secular, pagan, good or bad life that you had when you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, he says this, like I told Abram, I want you to leave everything that is familiar to you. And I want you to come and go my way. And it's almost always opposite of where we're going. It seems the same. That's because you live in America. Rabbi Shulam, who was speaking a few weeks ago in an interview with Mark, when he accepted Christ as his savior, as a Jewish man, what did his non-practicing Jewish family do? You're out. You're dead to me. We don't even know you anymore. You've left your land. We don't want you anymore. It's hard to understand what that is. But that's exactly what God is calling us to do. It's like, well, my family's saved and they're, okay, well, how blessed are you? Fortunate for you. But if you run into this idea that 
I just have to add God to whatever else I've got going on and he's going to be okay with me and I can do some ministry while I'm there and there's some other people that'll do more and between us all, I'm sure we'll get it done. God is asking you as a leader, he's the leader of you who are a leader to leave what you know, just like Abram. Let the old things pass away and all things become new. If you don't notice things passing away in your very comfortable American life, that your whole family's saved and you grew up in the church and life is good. If things are not passing away, there's something wrong. At least they should be passing away to some degree. We should be looking for that because that's how God leads. It goes on, he says, and all this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We have no excuse. God reconciled us. He brought us in, saved us from our sins and anything that would distract us from doing the will of God. Jesus fixed that at Calvary, that second covenant, new covenant, and we'll get to that more. But it just parallels what Jesus, what God was doing through Abram, who became Abraham, to start a nation. Leave everything. I'm going to start over with you, and we're going to make, the, we're going to turn the world upside down. We're going to make a big difference in the world. So moving on with how God picks, we have, how does God call a leader? He's called several leaders between Abraham and Moses, but I want to look at Moses because he's one of the big ones. He's a huge leader. God had left the nation of Israel that God was preparing and forming. He grew them up to a huge number in Egypt. He got them to Egypt where it was easy to get food. They had plenty of shelter. They had everything that they needed. And the Pharaohs loved them. And they were just another group. They got their own part of land. It was easy for them. God was growing them up in number to build his nation. Isn't that exactly what God wanted? And he used the most unconventional way to do it. You should file that away in your mind. It's very unconventional. And it got worse when new pharaohs began to rule and they were scared that the Israelites were becoming too numerous. Again, God's purpose. He wanted to make them more numerous than the sands of the beach, the stars in the heavens. And it was working. Scared the pharaohs. So they put Israel into captivity. And for a long time... And they continued to cry out to God, and God sent a Savior. He said, I've got a man that is not only a Jew, but also an Egyptian, because God worked that out. And he's been out in the desert just waiting for something to do. I'm going to reveal myself to him in this burning bush that does not consume itself. I will have his attention, and I will introduce myself in a way that I have never, even to Abraham, even to Isaac, even to Jacob, that I've never introduced myself. And we're going to do something about you Israelites and the world will see the power of your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so God picked this guy who was tall, good looking, eloquent. He could speak, he could sell ice cubes to Eskimos and do it without even thinking about it because he was so suave because that's the kind of leader that God picks, right? Oh, wait. Moses had a lot of problems. One of them is that he was a stutterer. He did not speak well, asked God to get someone else to be the mouthpiece and wanted to not go along with the plan. Again, do you hear the word unconventional in the plan of God? It's very unconventional, not what you would expect. And that's why you've got to go out of your way to listen to God. And when he speaks in that small, still voice, because if you keep doing the things the way that you're used to, you will miss him because that's the way that God leads. It might even be the way that he uses to test 
let us test ourselves to know whether or not we're following God. If you keep doing things conventionally, we may not be following God the way that we think that we do. I'm just reading the Bible. You can do with it as you will. So he calls Moses and he says to Moses later on because of other problems that we won't get into. And they're in the wilderness. And he, and he says, I will, uh, God says, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and I will put it on the elders that you will choose. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you. So Moses was doing all the work. Not only did he get the law from God because he met with God. He would go up into the cloud and he would meet with God, not face to face because even Moses said he did not see God. But he was there with the spirit of God. Remember the spirit at creation? What was the spirit doing? Hovering over the waters, just waiting for man to be created, waiting for the opportunity to inhabit man to do God's will. The spirit was right from the beginning, right where he needed to be to do exactly what God wanted to do. It's our responsibility to allow the spirit to do that in our lives. The spirit was ready here. God says, I've already put my spirit on you, Moses. You're the leader of my people and I'm talking to you and I'm having you tell them. Do you know what happened if a prophet prophesied wrongly and did not say what God said and it didn't happen the way God said it would? His punishment was that he would be stoned. It was a really big deal to not hear from God, especially as a leader with the Spirit, and not do and act according to what God had said. A big deal. It was life or death. That's how important picking a pastor or picking what God's doing in my life and following it is to the believer. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring some other people in to help you lead because you can't do it all yourself. You know, Moses would go up, he'd come down from the mountain and, and his face would what? It would glow. It would radiate because he met with God and then he would put the veil on because it would start to fade and he hadn't had a chance to get back with God and he didn't want people to see because he wanted people to think that he was tight with God. That was taken care of because the spirit of God was on Moses. And now God says, I'm going to take my spirit and put it on men that you choose. So Moses, I want you to go and pick a contingent of people and I'm going to put my spirit on them and I'm going to allow them to be led by me in a way never possible before for them. And they're going to help you lead this nation of Israel. Look at God's leadership through the Old Testament. In Numbers, and the Lord replied to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun. So he didn't have any parents. Joshua, son of Nun, a man with the spirit in him and lay your hands on him. Moving on, we see the same thing in Deuteronomy where he says, and Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. That's the Holy Spirit. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him. They recognized he also had the spirit. And back then, the spirit was not given to everybody. It was only given to particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. And once that was done, the spirit would be taken and give to someone else. Like, could God only give his spirit to one person at a time? No, he just gave them to all the elders and Moses. He just went from Moses and to Joshua. His spirit could be on as many people, but God in the Old Testament would only put his spirit on people for a particular reason, and he would empower them to do his will, which again was usually not what you would expect and very unconventional. And you would need the power of God in order to do it. Otherwise, you would succumb to the feelings of 
of stupidity and idiocy because like this does not make sense. Why would I build an ark and there's not any rain? That's stupid and people are going to make fun of me. But by the spirit of God, you have the power not only to do the task, but to uh, stand by the ridicule and not care because who's the leader? God's the leader. That's what we have to remember. And I forgot to mention that with Abraham, do you know how old Abraham was when God called him to begin a nation? Was he the young whippersnapper that we want to find as a new pastor? He was 75 years old. How old was Moses? He was old. How Caleb, he was 80 when he finally had the chance to take his mouth. So we have the spirit in the Old Testament only uh, affecting people that God wanted for a particular time and they were doing his will and leading the people. So we've gone through the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Ended with Moses, transferred to Joshua. That's the book of Joshua. That's the next book. What comes after Joshua? Judges. As God continues to lead, he picked judges to judge or to rule. Here's a list of the 12 judges that we had. And over here on the Elmo, if y'all can bring that up real quick, I have one of the passages from Judges that I've uh, preset because it's hard for me to find scriptures in here. Mark does it really good, so kudos to him. Uh, But in verse 9 here of Judges chapter 3, you see that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They were crying out because they had worshipped the Baals and the false gods of other nations along with God, which was explicitly forbidden. And God allowed the other nations to come in and wipe them out and take them into captivity. And they were again unhappy. And they cried out to God. And what did God do? It says here, they cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. It's a type of Christ. It's looking forward to what Jesus Christ would ultimately do correctly. But here, God was taking care of business. So to Nathaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And it says, verse 10, key, that the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. You can go back to the PowerPoint. That's Judges chapter 3 if you want to check that out. You can read through that. Each judge came at a time when Israel had gone off the rails. They were crying out to God. God sent another savior. And if you, we won't go through the list, but we see a, a woman, Deborah. Uh, We see people with a little bit of shady personalities and characteristics. Samson, if you know those stories, you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, we'll talk later via email. But each one that God sent his spirit upon. And we have Samson, who the spirit was taken away because of his sin. And at the very end, after he had been captured, he had been, uh, his eyes had been plucked out. Uh, He was a prisoner. Thank you. And he prayed to God, would you send your spirit to me just one more time? God, would you give me another chance and I will do your will? And God did send his spirit, empowered Samson, and he knocked the whole temple down, killing all the Philist- a lot of Philistines and others. And that was his last will that God had for Samson, who is a, and, and he, it was done by God, who is a God of second chances. Praise God for that. After the judges, we have the king calamity. If you know anything about the 
uh, history of Israel. After Joshua judges, you have Ruth. Then you have the Chronicles, the Kings, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. Uh, they're just going through talking about all the different kings and their different stories of the same things that are happening. And if you, if I were to put up a list of kings, we had uh, King Saul that uh, was was chosen by God. But why? Because the nation of Israel already had a king. Who was the king? King God. God was the king and did not want Israel to have a king, a, a human king, because they were going to, Israel was going to be an example to the rest of the world. How foolish would it be to have a human king when God's the king? That can be confusing. But they wanted it and he gave it to them and Saul became king. He did kingly things, had some victories, wanted to celebrate. And in one instance, the priest didn't make it there in time for the sacrifice. Saul was so hopped up that he went ahead and did the sacrifice himself, thinking, God, we're celebrating. We don't want to lose momentum. What does God say? There's no momentum. I'm God. I'm the one that causes things to happen, and I cause things to stop. I get you going, and I cause you to pause. But Saul went on his way, and he committed a spiritual sin. He committed the sacrifices that were wrong. And the priest comes and he says, what have you done? He did all the explaining, but it didn't matter. God did what? Took his spirit from Saul. Saul was still king for years after that without the spirit of God on him. How could he lead? He couldn't. God had already chose the new king. We know the story of David. He was the oldest. He was the tallest, the most handsome. Okay, again, I'm kidding with you. He was the youngest, the runt of the family. He probably had the most faith. And God had already chosen him, knowing that it was going to be several years before he would become king. And there's great stories we could tell about David, good and bad. But ultimately, David became king. And after he became king, he was involved in some physical sin. And at one point, he realized and he asked God to forgive him, the God of second chances. And in Psalm 51, we read the prayer of contrition of David, asking God to forgive him. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore a steadfast and a right spirit. He goes on and he says, Don't, please, don't take your spirit from me. He had just seen that in the life of Saul, didn't he? Saul had been, the spirit had been taken from Saul and David saw the life of Saul trying to lead without the spirit of God. David begged God, please don't take your spirit from me. Now in the new covenant today, we cannot pray that prayer because God God doesn't just give for temporary and take away. He did that in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that David would say that. He was scared to death that he had messed up too far and God was going to take it all away. He wanted to follow God in his humility. God forgave him and allowed him to continue as king with God's spirit. Solomon, David's son, uh, was not a great king. Some good things came out of it, but not good. And now, if I listed out a list of the kings of Israel, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. You have the northern kingdom. You have the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Uh, tons of kings. Most of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the kings had the spirit of God, so they had no excuse not to do what God wanted them to do. But because of their distractions, their own wills and agendas... They did their things their own way and caused a lot of problems. Some kings were good. Uh, we have Josiah, we have a few others that were decent, did okay. 
And, but God used, this is important to understand, that God used these imperfect men who were not the best and most righteous to do his will. And he's really good at it, and we're thankful because, well, we're kind of in that same boat. So um, what other leaders? Uh, can you name any of the other ones? We're not going to list them now, but there's all kinds of leaders through the prophets, uh, other judges that we really didn't go into, that God would put his spirit on and lead. So that's the Old Testament. Now we're moving into the New Testament, and it's time to be over. So it's time to end. So I'm going to run through this with you, that in the Gospels, King Jesus came on the scene. He was king, and the Israelites loved it. But he wasn't the kind of king that he wanted him to be, and that really messed with him. But he says in Acts that um, Luke, who wrote Acts, says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles and uh, that, that to the apostles that he had chosen after his suffering, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. It's that same idea that God has a kingdom. He is the king and he is ruling and he wants that kingdom to come on earth and be a part of, want us to be a part of that kingdom so that we can do his will led by the spirit. Now I need to say this before we leave that after Jesus died, when Pentecost came, which is my next point, uh, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came on every believer. Everyone who believes in God and uh, ask him, confesses of their sins and asks him to be the Lord of their life, the Spirit comes on them. Now you, as a believer, you have the Spirit. You are a leader in the church of God, in the kingdom of God. God wants to use you just like he uses me. And if you are sitting back in your seat saying, I'll let the leaders just tell me what to do and I'll be happy to do it. You are not following the God that he's leading you to follow because God says, I give you my spirit because I want to communicate with you and I want you to be a leader and I want you to do my will. And between all of you, if you're all listening to the same spirit, you're all going to be doing the same thing or the same type of things, maybe in different ways. So let's jump to the end, which is how do we find a pastor then? If what we talked about earlier may not be the, the best way, uh, just like here when the, a group of elders were chosen or a group of disciples were chosen, that God had his spirit on them, that they would represent God to a degree, that we've done that with a group of men and women, nine of them, to be a pastor search committee. We get that from the Bible, the idea that we pick a group of people to represent a larger group because if all, I don't know, however many thousand that we have at Champion Forest have to vote on a new person, uh, it might take us 10 years to finally get a senior pastor. But if we have a small contingent who are also that we agree and as we pick them that they would be people who love God, called according to his purpose, not perfect, but seeking God, then they would be a good group to bring a candidate that we as a church can say, yes, and we're seeking the spirit ourselves to know who or what God wants to have done here at Champion Forest. And from here here until they, well, until they started the committee in November until today, primarily they have been spending time praying to God and that's it. Not looking at resumes, not looking at people or listening to sermons, although I'm sure they've heard a few. They have been focused on praying and seeking God because God's word says that if you draw near to him, what will he do? He will draw near to you. So they, as well as we, should be doing that, praying the 11-week pastor search committee prayer focus for them and for our own selves and our own personal lives because God's leading us to do things even while we're waiting on a new pastor. And in the meantime, that group will one day uh, seek out God's man 
And when they do, without a timetable, without a human timetable, they're specific saying, we don't want a timetable because God has a timing that's not ours and we want to focus on God. We would do well to live that kind of life within our own personal lives. No timetable, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'm just waiting on you to tell me. And in the meantime, I'm going to keep doing what you already told me to do because I have the spirit within me. I am a leader in your church. And God says that he builds the church. He builds the church by giving the spirit to those who are seeking and following him and communicating and telling you what he wants done. And even though we're across the, this globe, Christians all over, we're doing the same types of things because we're seeking the same spirit. And if it seems different, it's either going to be something unconventional that we need to make sure is God's word or someone's not following God and not seeking the spirit. That's our key. That's what our committee is doing. And we're thanking God that they're taking this task so seriously in drawing near to God. Because if we do that in our personal lives and in our church lives, God's going to draw near to us and we will bring his kingdom to earth and we will do his will. God, make it so. Heavenly Father, as we leave today, we're so thankful that you count each of us as important. Your spirit is upon us as we have confessed our sins and confessed Christ as our Savior. For those who have not the opportunity to still receive your spirit is there as they confess their sins and ask you to be the Lord of their life. And as we do, I pray that we're not waiting for a leader to take our next step. For some more uh, wise Christian to tell us what to do, but that we are reading your word and we're listening to your spirit. And just like in Revelation says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen.